So last week we talked about Jesus intentionally dividing his disciples, really false disciples. And after Jesus taught them the truth, how they were like, we don't want anything to do with this. We're going to go take our business somewhere else. So now we're going to start seeing the results of that. So the conflict, it's a theme now. Uh, that has been developing in the Gospel of John, where now this conflict, of course, it's going to come to a head ultimately at the cross. Uh, So now we begin uh, to see that increase, and this is one aspect of that conflict. And really, it's a conflict that we're going to kind of see brought to light in in this passage that we're looking at today. It's a conflict of agendas. It's a conflict of mission. So today's title is A Worldly Agenda, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 13. If you're following along in your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Richard Bowles, author of What Color Is Your Parachute, uh, was asked at one point, what stands in the way of people finding or accomplishing their mission? He replied, prior or conflicting agendas. He said, for example, my wife Carol is a well-known career counselor, and she was meeting with a client who worked in the rubber industry, making plastics and rubbers and stuff like that. Called him, we can call him George. George told her in the first session, I've got to get out of this industry. So she gave him some homework to do because he he wasn't satisfied. He said, I don't feel like I'm accomplishing my mission. She gave him some homework to do and he came back the next week and he hadn't done a lick of it. So the wife said to him, what happens if you do not get out of this industry? He said, well, my wife will divorce me. She said, do you want your wife to divorce you? He couldn't keep the smile off his face. Because that was his ultimate agenda. She knew that he would never change his job and never complete his mission until he had gotten what he wanted, which was a divorce, with his wife taking the initiative and the guilt. Based on his behavior, he said his wife named this doctrine the doctrine of the conflicting or the prior agenda. You can't help people complete their mission or find their mission in life when they have a conflicting or prior agenda. Folks, as soon as you and I become a Christian, we are in conflict with another agenda. That is the agenda of this world. Jesus, right now, we're going to look at this passage, and it sounds, it's like a travel log, and I like that. Because ever since Jesus was born, he's been on mission. His goal, ultimately, is the cross. The cross where he is going to sacrifice himself for the sins of this world. And nothing is going to get him off that mission. And he's traveling along, focused on that mission. And here we have him traveling. He hangs out in Galilee, and his brothers want him to go up to the feast at a certain time. But they want to get him off mission. And that's exactly what it is like for the life of the Christian. As soon as you and I become a Christian, we're in conflict. Because it's not just that we give our lives to Christ as our Lord and Savior, so that He can be our Lord and our Savior, but as our Lord as well. 
And he has a purpose for us, each and every single one of us. He has a mission. And the world is going to try to continually get us off track and go along with its own agenda. Saying yes to God means saying no to the world. Jesus' mission here will not be compromised because, by the world because his mission is to change the world. And he does so by following God's will for his life, which is the death for this world, and nothing is going to stop him from doing that. The world's agenda stands in conflict with God's agenda. We have to realize that. And it's not just for this, this passage, even though it speaks to unbelief and the unbelief of the brothers, it's for Christians. Um, because Jesus is the example and the role model that we are to follow in following what? God's will for our lives. And the example that Jesus gives, really, Jesus' ultimate mission is the mission of the church, which is the gospel, the work that he has accomplished in preaching that gospel. So I see three characteristics that we're going to look at today in the world's agenda. The first characteristic is it is focused on worldly objectives, verses 1 through 5. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when, when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." For, your, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So this is what happens after he gives the Bread of Life discourse. And I, I kind of want to point out a few things before we get to the, the main part of this, these couple verses here. Uh, first of all, Jesus does not go into Judea at this time. But I want to point out that it is not because he is afraid of the Jews. The whole passage that we are going to be looking at is Jesus following God's will for his life. And he is focused on the mission. And now it is God's will for him to do what? To remain where he is at. It is not the time to go. Later on, it is going to be the time to go. And Jesus is not influenced by the world or by worldly fears as we are going to look at later on. Jesus does not go up into Judea, not because he was afraid of the Jews, but because God has a very, very specific timing for him. It's a good point, I think, to just make early on that some, God has a, a specific timing and a purpose for each of our lives. Uh, and we need to be able to be sensitive to that leading. Sometimes God wants us to do what? To go, to move, to do something to move forward and to enter into conflict, which Jesus is going to enter into eventually. But sometimes he wants us to stay. He wants us to remain where we are at and wait for him to prompt us and to move us forward. I find it really, really funny here because they are, it's kind of ironic. What is the feast that is at hand here? It is the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. It is the, or called Sukkot. Um, so, in uh, Leviticus, it tells us what that feast is all about. In, in Leviticus, it says, celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days. We know seven days is that number of completion. It is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. 
live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What's funny about that? How many people like camping? People love, yeah, campers hate it. Hate camping. Don't like camping whatsoever. I used to like camping. I only like camping with a purpose. If I'm going to fish the next morning, some people who go fishing with me don't like camping with me because I'm up at 4 a.m. waking them up, trying to get them to go fishing. So the, the Feast of Booze is kind of like camping, uh, but it is camping with purpose. And I find it interesting in this passage because I feel like the only person celebrating the Feast of Booze is Jesus Christ. The spirit behind that feast is to commemorate God bringing the people out of Egypt. What does Egypt often represent? The world, right? God bringing them out of the world, out of the world's agenda, out of the world's purpose for them, and making them live in shelter, in temporary shelters. So it reminds us, celebrating that feast, it, God gave them these feasts for a purpose, to jog their memory, to let them know, hey, guess what? You don't belong to this world. You're just doing what? Passing through. And because you're passing through this world, you are following a different plan. You're not following the plan for this world. But here, the brothers who are trying to get him to go up to this feast, they are part of the world. They haven't left the world. And we're going to see that because they don't what? Believe in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is truly celebrating this feast, and the brothers reveal this fact by revealing their worldly objective and their fleshly ways of accomplishing it. I'm sure you guys remember the movie Pinocchio. There's Pinocchio and Stromboli, and Pinocchio gets kind of taken in on the way to school one day. He's tempted by two conniving characters who recognize the commercial value of a walking, talking puppet. They introduce him to Stromboli, the carnival operator. Seeking fame and fortune as an actor, Pinocchio becomes the star of Stromboli's marionette show and generates lots of money for him. Stromboli sings loudly as he counts his money one day back in the room as Pinocchio naively looks on. He says, bravo, Pinocchio, bravo. They liked me, Pinocchio says. They loved you. You're a sensation, which kind of gives in to Pinocchio's pride there, and he says, sure, I will push you in the public eye. You will, your name will be on everyone's tongue. Stromboli eventually locks him in a cage and tells him this will be his home and that he's no longer free. He says, we will tour the world together and you will make lots and lots of money for me. Stromboli is using Pinocchio as a puppet, as a means to an end. The brothers are using Jesus as a means to an end. And that is sometimes what the world wants to do with Jesus, but it is also sometimes what believers do with Jesus. Use him as a means to an end. I see three objectives here that the brothers have for him. It's pretty interesting and ironic uh, as to what they are saying. But first, I just want us to think about, you know, we, we sometimes gloss over the fact that this is Jesus' family. These are his brothers, he grew up with these guys. He knows these guys. Who has some of the most influence over us? Is it in our family? Don't we fear the most by being 
ostracized by our immediate family. And I, I think we need to see kind of the, the humanness behind that, that this isn't really always easy for Jesus. He, he loves his family. And he's probably really saddened by the fact that they don't want, they don't believe in him. And now here, this objective comes out and they're, they're almost using him, aren't they? Why, why are they saying this? Well, Jesus just lost popularity, didn't he? So they're like, hey, guess what? If you want to regain those disciples that you just lost, you need to go to where the action is, to Jerusalem. Go to the heart of it. So now we see not only a worldly objective, but a really worldly way of accomplishing it. Fame. Make yourself known. Make yourself out into the public eye. But also, they, it says that they, they want to see the miracles. So they're not believing in him. They want to push him back into the public eye in order to regain some of his popularity, but also they want to see some more entertainment. So there's a pleasure aspect to this, but there's a third and more dangerous one that I think really comes to light here. And it's one that even Jesus' disciples sometimes fell into. With regards to the Messiah, the Jewish nation thought that a political Messiah was going to come set them free from Rome, be a king, and make them live in prosperity for eternity. And I think that this is uh, the main objective of his brothers. Because if you want to be king, and I think this is found in that phrase, show yourself to the world, meaning reveal your ultimate goal. And who's going to benefit if Jesus becomes king? His family, aren't they? And we see here this worldly objective, but we see a worldly way of accomplishing it because Jesus would need to do one. So he needs to go and basically storm the capital. That's what they're telling him to do. You need to go up, you need to go up to Jerusalem and you need to do one of two things. You need to sway the political rulers to follow you and to turn to you so that you could be their king or you need to sway the crowds and then take the kingdom by force. And even the disciples fell into that. And it's this aspect of Jesus. And I love this picture of the cross over the blue and the red and over the capital. Because it is the cross that is to influence every aspect of our lives and even our politics. And if there's a verse that I could switch around, I don't like switching verses around. But if I could switch it around, it's Christians are to be in politics, not of politics. You and I are not to be defined by politics, and we are not to use Jesus as a means to a political end. What is so crazy about this passage is that Jesus is going to show himself to the world. How does he do it? It's crucified on a cross. That's how he shows himself to the world. It's amazing that sometimes we, we just allow these worldly objectives to influence the church and we think that God wants us to set up some sort of political kingdom using the cross as a means to that end. That's not what we're about. The same objective of Christ, the cross, is the same objective of the church. 
how does God conquer kingdoms? He changes the hearts and minds of the individuals when the gospel is preached. We are not like his brothers using Jesus as a means to set up our political kingdoms. And, and I, I say this today and as, as your pastor, we're not guilty of this. But there's a lot of churches that are right now. And we, we have to be able, we have to, it's breaking my heart when I see this. When I see a political agenda taking over God's agenda. Jesus, it's not only the objective, it's the way that we go about doing it, isn't it? Jesus reveals himself to the world. And Jesus is going to be king, but first he wants to be king in people's hearts and minds. And that is the goal and the mission of the church. And we don't do that. We don't do that by violence or by force or by hate or by worldly methods. We do that the same way he does it. In humility, in love, in gentleness, in sincerity, and by preaching the cross of Christ. That is what is going to infiltrate the kingdoms of this world. That is what infiltrated the kingdom of Rome. That is what overthrew Rome. And that is what is going to overthrow this world in the end. It's the cross. And the church that lives out that cross in a humble, loving way, what does that look like? Do you know what it looks like? It looks like Jesus hanging from the cross and those who spat upon him, those who beat him, those who put the nails in his hands, saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what it looks like. That's Christianity. They're not our enemies. They are the ones Jesus came to save. And we can't replace this objective with a worldly one. I read a really good article this week sent to me by a friend. It's by David French. And he talks about the three orthos that Christians need. You know what ortho means? Right or correct. So orthodoxy. Anyone? Second one begins with a P. Ortho. Praxy. Thank you. Orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is right teaching or right belief or right praise. Orthopraxy is the right practice. But he adds a third one, and I absolutely love it. And it needs to go over both of these, and that is orthocardia. It means having the right heart. Having the right heart as we carry out this mission. And that is a heart of compassion. It's a heart of love. It's not a heart of hate. There's no room for hate of individuals. We can hate the agenda. We can hate the sins. But there's no room of hate of individuals in the Christian's lives. Jesus loved his enemies. That's what Christianity is. Suffering and dying and loving your enemies so that God can bring them into his kingdom. That's how he conquers kingdoms through the cross, not the cross of the Crusades, the cross of Jesus Christ. 
His brothers don't believe in him. And that's, that's sad. They eventually do, don't they? James is one of his brothers. We know James will believe in him after seeing him crucified. But they don't now, and it's revealed in their worldly objective. And they show that they follow a different timetable. And that's the second part of the world's agenda. Is they fo- it follows a worldly timetable, verses 6 through 9. So Jesus replies to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. It's kind of interesting. There's a similarity between the brothers I'd say demand almost, uh, and Mary. You remember Mary when she asked Jesus to turn the water into wine? And he says, my time has not yet fully come. But really, any type of similarity uh, disappears at this point. Because Jesus eventually does what Mary asks him. uh, And he does so because that was part of God's plan in order to reveal himself to his disciples so that they believe. Uh, Here, Jesus kind of gives them a very, very pointed response, doesn't he? And in his response, he reveals that they are following a certain timetable, which is really no timetable, because it doesn't matter, because they belong to the world, and they belong to the world's agenda. What time is it in Wonderland? Anyone know? It's always tea time, right? It's always tea time. Alice arrives at the tea party just in time for tea. What time is tea time? It's six o'clock. And because it's always tea time in Wonderland, there is no time for anything else. In fact, a significant feature about this tea party in Wonderland is time is frozen still. The idea of real moving passing time is absolutely non-existent. The absence of time means that the mad tea party is trapped in a space without time. The world isn't turning, hands aren't moving around the clock, and the only rotating exists around the tea party. When the four have finished their tea party, Alice of course got none, They move to the next place setting. Dirty dishes accumulate because there is no time for anything else. Why did this happen? Mad Hatter was accused of killing or murdering time, so therefore they've been trapped in a certain time. Folks, that's the world. It's always tea time. As a matter of fact, I would switch that around to it's always me time. It's always time for me. What is Jesus saying with regards to a timetable? Jesus is saying, look, any time for you is good because you're not on an agenda. You're on the world's agenda, which is no agenda at all, which is your agenda. So you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, however long you want, it doesn't matter. And Jesus specifies, he reveals something here. And this this word for time that he uses is actually a specific time. It's not really referring to his exaltation on the cross, which sometimes we see when it says, my hour has not come. That's his hour. The word here is kairos. It is a time. What time is he referring to? The time to go up to the feast. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying those who follow God's will, those who who follow God's plan have God's objectives. They carry out those objectives in God's way. And they do it when? In God's timing. This is a note to self for me. 
because I, I have a terrible time with time. When I find something in my head, I want it done, and I want it done right now. And I want it done in my way, and sometimes I need to step back and evaluate all of that. So God has a very, very specific timing. We know that Jesus has to die at a certain time. It's really good for us because it really helps us evaluate our lives. How often do we think about this? How often are we looking at our agenda, at what God has for our life, and are we doing this and saying, you know what, Lord, here are the goals that I think you have for my life. Here's how I kind of want to accomplish those goals, and here's kind of the timing that I kind of want to do that. And are you giving those things to him? Because that's what this is all about. When we believe in Christ, we enter into a completely different world. And everything belongs to him in that world, including the timing of those events. This is what submission looks like to God's agenda. His objectives, his way, and his timing. Timing is probably the hardest one for all of us, isn't it? It's hard for me, and, but we, see, we get to see how God works through our faithfulness to him in being patient and waiting for the things that he, he's deemed that are going to happen, but to happen in his way, in his time, and his purpose. Jesus was absolutely sensitive to that, even to the point of where he tells his brothers, hey, guess what? It's not my time. He's going to go in like, I don't know how much time has passed from when he decides to go, but he'll go. But he's sensitive to that timing. Believers, those who follow Christ, are more concerned with God's agenda, his objectives, how they are accomplished in his timing than anything else. That's our primary focus. It doesn't matter what it is. That overshadows everything that you and I do in our lives. Submit that to him. And that's how God is going to use us. If, if we're off running and doing our own things, God's just like, oh, okay, let me know how that works out for you. But if we're submitting to him and relying on his wisdom, and the Christian has, has a primary objective. What's our primary objective? The gospel, right? To, to be like, made like Christ, to be conformed to his image, and to preach that gospel to this world. But then we got, God has personal objectives for our lives. But all of those things need to be submitted to him. Ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Hell, he's going to guide you. It could be into, into a, being you know, a stay-at-home mom. It could be being a teacher. It could be whatever it is. That's a personal calling that God has in your life. Submit that to him and submit the timing to him as well and watch him work. And that's what Jesus is an example of us for. He's submitting to the Father. It's perfectly modeled by him. And therefore, all our plans need to be brought to Christ. The result of following God's plan, following his timetable, is guess what? Does the world like you? 
No, they, the world does what? Hates you. And Jesus reveals why it's easy for the brothers because the world loves the brothers so they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. Why? Because they are not in conflict with the world. So if the world hates us for this reason, we should not be surprised, nor should we retreat from God's agenda. Guy tells a story back in 2002. Ron Brown was a University of Nebraska assistant football coach. The Daily Nebraskan reported that he was denied a head coaching job at Stanford University. Do you know why he was denied a coaching job? Because of his religious beliefs. They actually told him that. Of particular concern was his candid belief that homosexual behavior is a sin. His religion, quote, was definitely something that had to be considered. He said they were a very diverse community with a diverse alumni. Brown says that he was absolutely shocked that they discriminated him against him for this reason. He said if it was any other reason, they would not have told him that. But they had no problem telling him, you are not getting this job because of your beliefs. Surprisingly, well, I would say not surprisingly, several newspapers applauded the university's decision, including the San Francisco Chronicle that said it was right not to hire such an outspoken Christian. Why do I use this example? I use this example because it it is in this area of sexuality that the church is going to face one of its greatest struggles, and it is at our doorstep. Jesus' mission is to die on the cross, which tells the world there is evil to be dealt with. That's how it's dealt with, but the world does not want us to take its evil from them. They love that. This is what they live for. They live for their lusts and their desires, just like we did, right? And when you try to take that from them, you're their enemy. And we cannot be surprised at this reaction at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus prepares his disciples for this very thing. He actually says the opposite of what he says to his brothers here. He says, basically, you're of the world to his brothers. And if you're of the world, the world is going to do what? They're going to love you. They're going to protect you. They're going to make you feel good. They're going to keep you in the world. What does he say about the disciples? If the world hates you, keep in mind that what? It hated me first. Don't be surprised. If it hates the master, it's going to hate the servants. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world, and therefore the world is going to what? Hate you. We don't want to be hated for the wrong reasons, but we do want to be hated for the right ones. The challenge that Christians face in this area of specifically of sexuality, because there are churches that are compromising all over the place, The challenge we face is really on two fronts. We have to be able to speak the truth in love, in gentleness, and in sincerity. Valuing the individual. Because why? They're made in the image of God. 
They have dignity and they have value for that reason alone. However, we have to speak the truth. Jesus died for sin, and our sin needs to be repented of. We need to agree with God. We need to acknowledge. That's what repentance is. It's acknowledgement and turning in the opposite direction. We need to say, yeah, this is wrong. This is sinful. God came, Jesus came to save this world from sin. And it's going to get worse for the church. We just need to be prepared for that. This is the hill. This is the battle that we're going to face. And as I said, we, we, we have to do it in a loving and respectful way, but we have to do it. And the world's not going to like it. The world does not want us to tell it that its deeds are evil. And what they use to keep us from doing that is the last part of their agenda. It fools us with worldly fears. Verses 10 through 13. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, as if in secret, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling, there's that word grumbling again, or whispering among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet, no one was speaking openly of him. Why? For fear of the Jews. So at this point, this is the right time for Jesus to go up to the feast. So somehow God directed him, but he doesn't go up the way that the brothers want him to go up, does he? He doesn't go up showing off. He doesn't go up Merak doing all these miracles. He goes up in secret. And it's kind of funny because there's two kind of secret things going on here. There's Jesus in secret, and then there's the whispering in secret. The whispering is what should be done publicly. Jesus is the one who's okay in secret. But the whispering is not done publicly. Why? Fear. Fear of the Jews. The fear of the Jews is the, the, the ruling class. And what are people afraid of? Well, either way, it doesn't matter whether they think good of Jesus or bad of Jesus. They don't want to say anything. They don't want to say anything because they were afraid that the Jews were going to put them out of the synagogue. Actually, we are going to see this in John chapter 9. And we see the result of this fear when Jesus here heals the man born blind. And the, they ask, the rulers ask the parents, and the parents just say, why don't you ask him? Why did they say that? His parents said these things because they did what? They feared the Jews. The Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, that he would be what? Put out of the synagogue. How many people... Struggle with fear. You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe we struggle with fear in sharing our faith or in letting people know we're Christians. Here's a, here's a story for you. Guy tells a story about uh, attending graduate school for English. There were many occasions, he said, uh, during that time when those in his classroom openly ridiculed the name of Jesus Christ. 
So what did he do about it? He stayed silent. He found it interesting because back at home, when he was with his church, he was like, Jesus, all about Jesus, right? He said he was quite vocal about his faith. He was vocal in his church and he was vocal with his friends. But when he was in school, he was terrified. He was terrified to speak openly about Christ and he was afraid of what might happen to his reputation if people found out that he was a Christian. He said most of them there were really just ignorant about Christians. Uh, Several of them never even met a Christian before and assumed that all Christians were uneducated, judgmental stereotypes that we see in media. Yet he was still afraid. He said as the, the program went on, I began to feel guiltier about those silences. You know how God works, right? And he's like, ah, maybe you should say something. You're like, no, Lord, please don't bring this up anymore. I like what he says here. Listen to what he says here. It's a good self-evaluation. He says, if I couldn't be obedient to Christ in such a central thing, that's real important. We're not all evangelists, but we're all disciples, and all disciples are called to what? Speak for Christ. It's a central thing. And he says, if I couldn't be obedient to him in such a central thing, how am I going to be able to serve him in any other fashion? What a great evaluation. He said, God was faithful and he brought forth more opportunities. Isn't that what happens? You're like, no. And God's like, here. And you're like, no, here. Until eventually, do you know what happened? Oh, in the middle of the classroom, it's really weird because one of his friends asked him in front of everyone, are you a Christian? There he was standing in the face of this kid asking, or this girl, asking him if he's a Christian, surrounded by his classmates, which, with whom he's remained silent about. So sometimes God's like, okay, you need a little help. Let me just put you square right in the face. He's like, if you're not going to do it on your own, I'm going to put you in a situation that you're going to have to do it. So he said he, he prayed and then he spoke softly and all he said was yes. So big step for him, I guess, but I think he needs a little bit more progress. <laughs> if all your yes, and then you run out the door. He said, the, the girl says, interesting, I always thought Christians were circus, circus freaks. Well, not everyone, but. He said, but actually, you're kind of smart. He said, it was a small step, but even the smallest step made in obedience is progress. God tells us not to fear for our reputations or anything else. Why? Because his truth will always win out. I feel like we're like this guy sometimes when it comes to witnessing for our faith, isn't it? It's like, no, and we actually pray in the opposite direction. Lord, please don't let me talk about my faith. Let me talk. But in church, we're like, Jesus, woo, Jesus, love you, Jesus. Then we get out into the crowd. It's like, Jesus, I'm sorry, who? Yeah, he's good. All right. All right, thanks. I'll see you later. This kind of reminds me of Peter with the servant girl, right? And then the servant girl comes and, hey, weren't you hanging around with this guy? I have no idea who you're talking about. That guy, no way. Leave me alone. He starts swearing, basically. No, leave me alone. And that's what we're kind of like. Please don't ask me about Jesus. But in church, we're all about Jesus. We need to take that enthusiasm in church out into the, out into the world. Not be afraid. These people were afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of the ruling class. They're afraid of their reputation. They're afraid of being put out by this world. That's okay. Do you know why? We're going to another kingdom. We're traveling through. That's the Feast of Booths. 
walking through this world. We don't belong to this world. That's what? They got nothing on us. The world will use fear to keep you in its agenda. It's going to make you afraid to speak the truth, and it's going to make you afraid to speak about Jesus. Because some people think that what these crowds were thinking, he's divisive. No, he stirs up trouble. Jesus is trouble. What are you afraid of? Reputation? Family? Job? Folks, if if you and I believe in the sovereignty of God, if you and I believe that God is in control, then guess what? Nothing to be afraid of, is there? Who does Jesus say to fear? Don't fear the ones who could just kill the body. Fear the ones who deal with the soul. Fear him. And that's a love of him. And a love of him is saying, hey, and not doing it in a weird way, right? We're not, we're not proselytizing people to death. Don't, don't get me wrong. But we, we need to have a courage to speak out the gospel. Do you know why? Because those people are the ones that need it the most. Those people are dying. We're not. We have this life. And if we, if we keep this truth in out of fear, those people are going to die. And die eternally. That's something to be afraid of, isn't it? Who knows? Maybe someone might believe. I think sometimes we're like, oh no, no one's believing. I don't want to talk about it. I mean, who, who knows, right? We, we have no idea. Maybe someone, and I know, there's not many people. It feels like no one's believing right now. It feels like we're, we're preaching to iron walls. But remember last week, remember who's in control of that. He is. Our job is to preach and to throw that seed and see where it lands and see if God is going to give it growth. That's our job. We can't be afraid to speak that truth. Look, one of the greatest evangelists of all times, listen to this prayer. He, this is what he's praying. I'm like, dude, you don't need to pray that. He's, he's an evangelist. Paul, right? He's in jail for the gospel. And he's saying, hey, pray for me that whenever I speak, Words that would be given to me so that I will fearlessly, I love that translation, fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm in chains for right now. So I'm going to assume that he fearlessly made known the, the gospel. Pray that I may declare it how? Fearlessly. Fearlessly. Not worried about the world. Not worried about the world's reaction. Aiming to please one individual, God. That's it. He's the one that we are to fear. Part of God's agenda is that we declare the truth. We declare the truth of who Jesus is, not afraid of the repercussions. We declare the truth of what he has done, that he has died and suffered and died and rose again from the dead to save us from the evil that we love. Folks, the world's agenda is to keep us from obeying God's will. That's its goal. 
ultimately, unbelief. But every time that we disobey God's known will for our lives, that's unbelief. Because we believe something else is better. We fall into that trap to get us off track. Just like Jesus' brothers did to follow a different plan, plan with its own objectives, its own timetable, and one that uses fear to control its followers. Folks, the world doesn't want the cross of Jesus Christ. Doesn't want it. And it will do anything to stop that message from going forth, but it is the cross of Jesus Christ that the world needs most. Following God's will for our lives is going to put us into direct conflict with this world's agenda. But following His will for our lives is also going to save it. Father, thank You for the courage that Your Holy Spirit gives us. Thank You for using us, Lord, to carry out Your mission here on earth. Lord, thank you that Jesus did not turn aside, that Jesus was not swayed by this world, but Jesus cut a straight line to the cross and did so for your glory and for our souls. Lord, help us to follow in that example. Help us to preach the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.